I want to look at the story of two mothers from 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 to 28 on the subject. So it should not surprise you that uh, being Mother's Day, I thought I would speak on the subject. I have <clears throat> no particular authority on the matter other than the mere fact that I have one, a mother that is, and the person to whom I married happens to be one as well. In fact, I know a lot of people who happen to be mothers and they tell me things and I observe and I hear and uh, I hopefully I understand just a little bit of what is involved in this God-given role. And it's important because at a time when the institution of the family is being threatened from all sides, at a time when traditional values and roles are being sorely tested, this morning I want to encourage mothers not to be swayed by their societal tide, but to take a stand and to make the most of the privilege that God has given you from a biblical perspective. In the passage that we read, in the the earlier part of the Bible tells us how Solomon had been given wisdom and discernment by God to govern his people and to distinguish between right and wrong. And, And this is what Solomon chose after God offered him the deal of a lifetime. Whatever you want, I will give it to you. Because of David, then the blessing, this, this amazing opportunity fell on Solomon, the newly crowned king. And now comes the first test of this new found, this gift of wisdom that God had given him. And this story marks one of the defining moments in the life of King Solomon. It happened early in his reign and it was an act that certainly spread his fame, not just in Israel, but to surround to the surrounding countries and nations as well. Now based on this story from the to draw out some lessons for what real motherhood is about. First of all, I want to say that no mothers are perfect. It's a simple title, but it's true. This is what it says. Let's read again and see if we can understand the story a little bit better. Two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. When the Bible describes someone, it paints them in all the true colours. It doesn't hide anything. We all tend to you know, put passwords on our privacy is a big thing, right? On our smartphones and computers, and we keep things hidden a lot of the times. We cannot hide anything from God. And the Bible paints it, the Bible gets right where it's at. These two mothers were not upstanding citizens with high morals, they were both prostitutes. What is a prostitute? Someone who sells their body days of others. In those days, there was a lot of temple prostitutes as well and they did their 
work as part of the act of worship at the temple, a pagan temple that is, not the worship of God. But this is what the land was like. The Bible does not tell us how or why they ended up as they were. Quite possibly their husbands went to war and did not return. That is another possibility. It used to happen quite a lot. There was a war and the husbands did not return. As such then, the the oldest profession, as it has been called, has been a fallback for many women who have been themselves found, found themselves in difficult circumstances. Now these two women shared the same house and it just so happens that both were blessed with sons just three days apart. I say blessed because the Bible tells us Psalm 127 verse 3, that children, how they are a reward from the Lord. This is regardless of how they are conceived and in what circumstances they are brought into the world. They are a gift from God. It is interesting that many godly women really struggle to conceive in the Bible. Yet these two characters, these two women with loose morals, seem to have no problem in that area. Now these babies born to single mothers who were prostitutes would not be living obviously in an ideal environment, far from it. Yet the mothers came seeking justice and they deserved justice just because of the way they they lived and their their choices and the morals, the, the questionable life, let's put it that way. They also deserve justice. And despite the fact that how they live, deep down inside, they were still mothers. Let us never forget that. And this is the harsh reality of the sinful world in which we are called to live in. And in 3,000 years, Nothing much has changed when it comes to human nature and sin and fallenness and the choices that people make. And here is something that I've come across and on this Mother's Day it is a good reminder not just to pastors but to all of us because it's it's easy to to go into sentimentality uh, when it comes to motherhood because, you know, it's just the way it is. you know, it pulls at the heartstrings. But let's, let's bring a bit of reality to this. First of all, for some, motherhood was unplanned and not always a welcome one. Also, for some, biological motherhood is not possible. Also, for some, their mothers were not all that nice. Okay? Let's just... Put it out there. Best of. And then, for some, motherhood under the very best of circumstances is still less than a bed of roses. A poet once said, To become a mother is not so difficult. On the other hand, being a mother is very much so. And I think a lot of you will say amen to that. 
Now, having said that, you don't have to be a perfect mother in order to be a good and godly mother. My mother was not a prostitute, far from it. I can also tell you that she was and is not perfect. But God chose her for me and she has been a wonderful mother. The greatest difference in her life is the fact that all her days she has feared and served and loved the Lord as she was brought up in a Christian family. And therefore so was I. That is a privilege that God has given me and I I don't say that lightly. So if you have been brought up in a Christian family with godly parents, you are doubly blessed because that, that is not the story of many. I would say most. And you have to give thanks to God for that. In a world, in a world that is chasing after glamour and beauty and comfort, comparing this with the other, this is what the Bible says. Proverbs 31.30 Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting. But the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. One beauty is fading away. We're all getting older. So to remind you of that, that's that fading glory thing that you find out every morning in front of the mirror. But something else inside has to be renewing, improving, has to be growing. It's called our sanctification, growing more and more each day like Christ. That is what, that is the fear of the Lord. This is what is to be praised. And hopefully this journey will continue to, this, this, to lead us in Christ into eternity. This is what we're aiming for. The next point is that mothers know their children, verses 19 to 22. They know their children. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. Next morning I got up to nurse my son and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son I had born. Tragically, one of the boys died when his mother accidentally lay on the child in the middle of the night and suffocated him. When she realised what she had done, the woman got up and exchanged her dead son with the son of the other woman. And and let's be honest, it is sad what has happened. It, It happened accidentally that she killed her son by accident. She didn't mean to. It happened. And she probably blamed herself for what happened. And so in her mind she was racing, what am I going to do in her desperation, in her grief? So no, no, this can't be. So she does the unthinkable, swapping babies. Because it is deep 
it, 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 it is common for, for people in deep shock and grief to do silly things because they're just simply not thinking straight. I want to fix the situation somehow. I should not be going through this. I should not be in pain. I should not be going through this tragedy. But her action is not just, it is ideal. In fact, it is extremely callous. It is actually criminal what she's done. In the morning, we're told that the second mother awoke to great grief when she saw the dead baby laying by her breast. When she examined the baby, she immediately knew it wasn't hers. And and this baby was only days old and she could tell the difference straight away in the the light of day. Remember, in those days, you couldn't just flick a switch and straight away find out the difference. You had to wait till daylight. It revealed that it wasn't hers. Now, unfortunately, these mothers had no witnesses to corroborate or support each other's testimony. It was just one word against the other. If they had, then the normal due process would have taken place because other people perhaps would be able to recognise what the babies looked like. Also, there was no DNA testing back then and it wasn't a case of trying to find out who the father was. This wasn't who the father was. This was a maternity, not a paternity test, but a maternity test in order to find out who the real mother was. So this mother had a real problem. Now, I can tell you from a man's perspective, all babies look the same to me. I remember one particular email I received uh, from a friend who, after the birth of my fourth child, after Dylan was born, and the email was just, you know, a male friend. Uh, a, a simple question was, what kind is it? That was the that was what the that's typical male talk, right? Just very matter of fact. Let's just get to the point, you know, forget all the gooey stuff. I struggle with my kids' pictures, to tell you the truth, when they were younger. Oh, was this Jeremy? Was who was it? No, no, no. Anyway, but mothers aren't like that. They know their children. And they will tell you that they know them way before they were born because they've been carrying them for nine months. And the bond develops way before these males are able to lay eyes on them. That's the privilege that mothers have. In Isaiah, God tells his people, in Isaiah 49, verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? And the answer is obviously it's a rhetorical question, but no. A mother understands what a child even does, when a child even doesn't say, doesn't express something verbally. They understand, they understand. Mothers know when you're trying to hide something from them. 
when you're afraid, when you're worried. They call it maternal instinct or mother's intuition when they sense that everything is not quite an ear. And this special bond between a mother and her children is God-given. It is a gift. And this privilege also comes, however, with responsibilities. God did not give the state, the government, did not give the state the role of bringing up children, of educating them. First and foremost, he gave this responsibility to mums and dads within the context of the family. And that is why the government, because of everything that is happening, that's why they're trying to remove mums and dads from the process of the formation and education of their kids. That is why it's so important that parents give their children the proper, proper training. Proverbs 22 verse 6 says this, Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old... He will not turn from it. Now, sometimes this, this children, as a, as a guarantee that godly parents will always produce godly children. Let me tell you that is, <laughs> you probably found out that that's not always the case. That's not what this verse says. Every child, let's remember, is a fallen descendant of Adam. The root word of train up in the Hebrew is actually a, a word used to describe the, the palate or, or the roof of, of the mouth. It was used to describe the actions of a Hebrew midwife who, after helping deliver a baby, would dip her finger in a paste made of dates, a sweet, and rub it on the gums of the new baby to create thirst and start the baby's feeding Instinct. Put her on the breast. The parent, therefore, in like manner, is to create a thirst in the child for the things of God, for what is right. And that is a responsibility. That is the track that you lay before them. Many... Many times they obviously want to try this track and go that way and that way, but somehow you pray to God that they will come back to the, to the track that was laid out. Next point is that mothers want the best for their children, verses 23 to 28. The king said, this one says this, my son is alive and your son is dead, while the other one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. And the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword to the king. Then he gave the order, cut the living child in two, give half to one, half to the other. And the woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, please, my lord, give her, give her, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. The other said, neither I nor you shall have him, cut him in two. Then the king gave this ruling, give the living baby to the first, the first woman. Do not kill him, 
She is his mother. Now I picture this as, a, as a, one of those legal cases that gains notori- that gained notoriety in, in Israel and it was discarded the radio station, media and the networks all day and people be calling the radio stations and articles be written about it. This is what, how I sort of picture this case. Think of a nation captured by the case just like Australia was 40 years ago with the case of Azaria Chamberlain. You remember that? How could you not? Kings, because you see, kings would not be asked to adjudicate on everyday matters. It is impossible to do so. The fact that this case reached the highest court, the king's court, tells you that it, it could not be resolved, I imagine, in the normal judicial process. The lower courts, let's say. Because of this, the matter is brought to the highest court in the land before the king, young King Solomon. Now, it is also a, a, a nice touch that the king up high is able to mix with the people at the bottom, even those of ill repute. And the Bible just tells it like it is. And, and something you see that his father David, King David, had was the common touch with the person on the street. That's what made one of the great characters of King David. He, he, he knew the person on the street, the common people. And, and, and I think at least very early in his kingship he had that. And Solomon early in his kingship had that. But later on, obviously we know what happened. Because nothing alienates more than elitism when you separate the rich and the powerful from the, the lowly people. One of the great things that Jesus did, of course, is that he, he was born, born and mingled amongst the, the poor and the lowly. And he could certainly handle himself with the rich and the powerful as well. Now, the wise king had a very difficult task of identifying who the real mother was because there were no other witnesses, like we said. It fell on Solomon to figure out who was being truthful and his plan for doing so was brutal, was as brutal as it was brilliant. there would be no lengthy trial, right? Set up a jury, bring witnesses, character, studies. He simply ordered that the child be cut in two so that each woman receive satisfaction for this child. Ultimately, it's obviously insatisfaction and, and deep mourning that the child's going to be dead as well, just like the other one. And having gone this far, one would have to assume that Solomon would go all the way in what he threatened to do. 
Otherwise, he wouldn't be less than a king. In this sense, it wasn't just the mothers who were on trial, but the king was also on trial. But ultimately, what? It would be the child, this infant, innocent child who would pay the ultimate price even though he did nothing, nothing, nothing for what, for that which he's about to be slaughtered. Folks, it is happening way too often in our pro-choice society. Way, way, way too often. Of course, the real mother will be the one to blink first. And Solomon got the real mother to identify herself by forcing her to to take a stand, to, to offer the ultimate sacrifice for her at that stage. And without missing a beat, she was willing to give up her son alive, alive, rather than see him die. And Solomon, in all his God-given wisdom, knew this and determined the mother of the child from her selfless, sacrificial love. And that meant being willing to give her dear child away rather than having killed. And when she stood up for her child, she obviously showed herself to be the real and true mother. Of There's a couple of lessons here. And I'm going to get a little bit sensitive, but so be it. More like warnings, I suppose. And the figures I'm going to give you, they're factual, they're not made up. Firstly, this whole issue speaks to the whole abortion debate. In particular, post-birth or abortion up to birth or even, let's call it, infanticide. In most, let me explain, in most Australian states, doctors are not required to provide medical assistance to children born alive as a result of an attempted abortion. These babies are left to gasp for breath until they die on a table. Everybody walks out of the room, just let the infant die. In the medical profession, they but the same rights and medical treatment as any other human being. But it's not the case. Yes, I know some of these children would have health issues. Some of them perhaps even uh, being born um, because of rape. I don't know. Here's a figure. Between 2005 and 2015, in 10 years, 204 babies were born alive as a result of an abortion in Queensland. In 10 years. These are official figures. 204. 10 years. 
in 2016 in Victoria, 33 out of 310 babies aborted after 20 weeks gestation were born alive. And the longer we leave abortion, the, the later we leave it, now it's up to full-term abortion, the more will survive the attempt to abort them. Sadly, none of them were afforded life-saving medical care. And when we're dealing with the issue of if these children had health issues and were going to be handicapped, what is actually happening then, let's not even call it infanticide, let's call it eugenics. You know what eugenics is about, right? That's what Hitler did. We don't want them in our society. Let's just get rid of them before they're even born. Why? Because the state is running out of money. We can't afford to bring these kids. We're going into a very, very, very dangerous territory as a society when this happens. Now they're bringing euthanasia laws. So when you're no longer able to contribute to society at the end of your life or you're not going to contribute at the beginning, we're just going to cut it out, cut you out of society because you're not contributing. Now, this is a supposedly a civilised society. Not Germany, the most advanced civilised society uh, the world had ever known, up in the 1930s and 40s. And here we are again. How can this be? One day, God will judge the nation for this. I'm asking here, what emotional, moral state must a mother be in order to prefer for her child to be left to die, let's call it cut by the sword, rather than give that child up for, for adoption by another family? Wouldn't it be that this is what the loving mother did? Please give her, give her the child. Don't cut her in half. Please. And yet here we are as a society just abandoning. This is what the Romans used to do. They just abandoned the kids, threw them out. And, and then what Christians did is that they picked up these babies abandoned and they brought them up. This is the whole, whole adoption and Orphanages and up were starting to set up even in the early days of Christianity that were bringing up these kids who nobody wanted. Especially when there are so many desperate parents unable to conceive, willing to adopt and bring these children as their own. How can we as a state allow this? I ask. Secondly, let's also move from that to another area. First things first. Mums, please remember that in sacrificing your, your time and money and, and energy for your children and wanting the best for them, that you don't idolise them. That is a big no-no as well. 
I hear comments, I read comments online such as, my children are my world, they are everything to me. Guess what that sounds like? I understand, I understand as much as a male can understand the deep love that you have for your child. Yes, I understand that. But don't sacrifice your own relationship with the Lord because of them. Jesus put these things into perspective. I'm not making this stuff up. This is what he said. He said this in Matthew 10:37. Anyone who loves his mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. And then, anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is what? Not worthy of me either. Mothers... Love your children as much as you are physically able to. Yes. But in all, as in all things, the Lord has to be first and foremost in our lives. Seek first his kingdom in all things. If you seek him, he will enable you to become a better parent, a better mother, a better father. And remember that it is God who gives life. It is God who sustains life. And when he chooses, he also takes life. That's also there. Right? The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. That was Job's experience. Ultimately, we are all accountable to him for our lives and for those he has put under our care. May we continue to grow in our love for the Lord to whom we owe all things. Amen.